Hi, this is Elliot Fishman. Welcome to part three of three on pancreatic cancer. And I thought I would do a little bit on potential pitfalls. Now, I mentioned before, obviously, the biggest pitfall is missing the lesion. Um, but there are other problems we have. So one of the problems, of course, is when we're following patients who are getting chemotherapy and radiation therapy, to determine when surgery should be done, we use some time things. We also look at the tumor. This article makes the point by Kim that patients with pancreatic cancer, particularly in the head, you can overestimate the degree of peripancreatic spread because sometimes you have an inflammatory process even though there's no viable tumor. And we know this with Appleby procedures that in those patients have the tumor around the um, celiac and even with an excellent response, it may not change to normal. We follow it give it four months to six months, then they operate and 95% of the time there's no tumor present. So you need to understand that you may not see a pristine field, but if things don't change and over time, that's very critical. Some people have used PET, but that's not helpful. And so this article again by Morgan, sensitivity for predicting of resectability tends to be low for patients with locally advanced pancreatic cancer that has been downgraded by neoadjuvant therapy, but this trend is not significantly significant. Interobserver variability for determination of resectability is higher than for controls who did not receive pre-op therapy. That basically means if you've seen a lot of cases, you probably tend not to overcall things. So again, you want to be careful, and this article by Morgan does make the point, tend to err on the side of undercalling rather than overcalling. Another article by Cassatnato, partial regression of tumor vessel contact indicates suitability for surgical exploration, irrespective of the degree of decrease in tumor size or the degree of residual vascular involvement. Very, very good point. And again, it's typically post-chemo, post-radiation therapy, Again, once things become close to steady state, you want to be very careful. Again, they may do one or two more courses of chemotherapy or radiation therapy, and then the patient is off to surgery. Other mistakes. We see many cases where the biopsy was inconclusive or atypical, but then we look and we say, aha, this patient's lucky. There is no tumor. Patient has autoimmune pancreatitis. Difficult diagnosis, though we're doing AI to detect it. And that's an article by Satomi Kawamoto and Seung Park coming out, better than 95% accuracy. Things like groove pancreatitis, chronic pancreatitis at times, focal fatty infiltration of the head of the pancreas can be problematic. And if a patient has a stent in place, that can be an issue as well. We also talk about mistakes in diagnosis. Again, the issue, the smaller the mass, the harder it is to see, particularly off uncinate or tail of pancreas, when there are secondary signs not present. Remember, I spoke about a dilated pancreatic duct or common duct. That makes it easy. But if there's no duct dilatation, it's coming off the edges of the gland. That can be problematic. Patients have acute pancreatitis. Often there's the confluence of two diseases in up to 5% of cases reported by Mayo Clinic. And then you may blow by the tumor because you assume it's pancreatitis. You need to be very careful. And many of those patients simply need a follow-up study. And again, I can't repeat it enough, poor protocol will lead to errors. Let me comment a little bit about autoimmune pancreatitis. It's a type of chronic pancreatitis that is characterized by the autoimmune inflammatory response. Key findings, absence of classic history of prior pancreatitis, elevated IG4, which is the key way of making the diagnosis, though our researchers at Hopkins are now showing many patients do not have positive IG4 
dramatic response to steroids, and difficulty distinguishing from pancreatic cancer. Now, I will admit, I never heard of autoimmune pancreatitis until a few years ago, and now I'm pretty good at diagnosing it, but it can be extremely, extremely challenging. The age range is often the same as cancer. Signs, weight loss, abdominal pain, jaundice, diabetes, that sounds like pancreatic cancer to me. Sometimes you get lucky there's extra pancreatic processes, whether it's sclerosing cholangitis, whether it's changes in the kidney, retroperitoneal fibrosis, particularly the kidneys really point me to autoimmune pancreatitis. But again, without that, if it's only the pancreas, unless you think about it. Now remember, if you think it's autoimmune pancreatitis, just get an IG4. Most of the time it's gonna be positive. So again, really very, very important. Uh, sometimes it's classic, this sausage-shaped configuration or this halo around the lesion becomes very classic. But sometimes it's just not easy. It's the atypical cases that can be challenging. So let me show you an example. Look at this lesion by the tail of the pancreas. Looks like hypodense lesion. Yes, there's no dilated pancreatic duct, but it looks like a mass. Look at this cinematic. It looks like a mass. Here it is in the coronal. Looks like a mass. That was autoimmune pancreatitis. This case is easy. You got this no dilated duct. The whole gland's involved. There's a halo around it, that cigar-shaped configuration that people indeed do speak about, beautifully shown here, or shown here as well in these 3D renderings. Autoimmune pancreatitis. Another patient. Here the patient has a stentin already. The patient presented with jaundice. Obviously pancreatic cancer. But, you know, it looked kind of, particularly the body and tail, when do you see such a big mass infiltrating the entire gland but no dilated pancreatic duct? Oh yes, there's an incidental lipoma in the colon. But we look at it, it just looks, okay, but maybe it's a cancer, but just get an IG4, they got an IG4. And remember again, it's always the same story. Biopsy wasn't positive, maybe atypical. That's a good thing for me to think about. Two weeks of steroids, boom, the pancreas is small, it's back to normal. What's the worst you do is give steroids in your way two weeks? Gone. Here it is side by side. Once you've seen a lot of autoimmune pancreatitis, you kind of get a feel. So perhaps you can look at our teaching file or look online and look at a lot of cases. I think it's very, very important. Now, other things in the list I should talk about. Tumors that simulate pancreatic cancer. Patients sent to pancreatic cancer clinic, pancreatic cancer. Yes, there is a mass here. I don't disagree with that. But if this was pancreatic cancer, there'd be dilated common duct and pancreatic duct, no doubt about it. When I see a big mass that's round, homogeneous, I gotta be thinking something else. And so here it is in the coronal view. You see it pushing, but not invading the duodenum. Here you see it on the arterial view. Nice GDA, a few collateral vessels, so there is some vascularity present, shown best on this second set of images. That's a very classic appearance for a GIST tumor. And things like duodenal lesions, sometimes duodenal adenocarcinoma versus pancreatic adenocarcinoma is hard, though probably it doesn't matter, you'll get a biopsy. The chemotherapy will be different. Surgery would be a Whipple's, but chemo is different. Uh, again, other things that you can confuse with adenocarcinoma, obviously neuroendocrine tumors, but usually they're vascular. METs, occasionally breast cancer, other tumors that can be problematic. Sometimes things that are on the duodenum, okay? Or things that are nodes, peripancreatic nodes, lymphoma, metastasis for melanoma. Those are things you wanna think about. 
So here's a patient with abdominal pain, weight loss. There's a mass in the body of the pancreas, dilated pancreatic duct, but you know, it's kind of dense, the mass. Usually adenocarcinomas are hypodense, but it's not dense enough for a neuroendocrine tumor. You see it again in this view, there's a dilated duct. Again, there's a mass there, there's no doubt about it. This was metastatic breast cancer, okay? Patient had breast a couple years before and now has metastatic breast cancer. Again, you, if I showed you this case alone, you're gonna say pancreatic adenocarcinoma and so would I. Or this example, look at the cavernous transformation of the portal vein, big mass in the pancreas, there's nodes. Could this be a pancreatic primary? Here's the vessel encasement, occlusion of portal vein, SMV confluence, occlusion of splitting vein, multiple collaterals, diffuse tumor infiltration, boom. You might say pancreatic cancer, you might be right metastasis from breast. Or this case, I have to admit there's an infiltrating tumor. It looks like a head of a pancreas infiltrating and extending into the patient's duodenum. This was actually a gist tumor of the duodenum extending into the pancreas. So I've seen that a number of times. Direct involvement of the pancreas. And you can see it's really by the uncine, there's involvement of the GDA, there's involvement of the SMA and the SMV. So sometimes it can be very tricky. You may need a biopsy to prove it. This one, I have to admit, I probably would have thought of an adenocarcinoma, and that's probably what I would have said. But you're not always going to be right. And look at the collateral vessels. When I see vessel invasion, that to me more likely is pancreatic adenocarcinoma. But that's not always going to be the case. Or this example, okay, what are we arguing about? Vessel encasement, big mass, carcinoma, next case. This was lymphoma. Now, lymphoma usually involves the pancreas and extends beyond the pancreas. It could be nodes pushing on the pancreas, or it can be this case with this infiltration. And you can see the inflammation or infiltration into the hilum around the portal vein and SMV growing up, but the vessels are patent. So it can be tricky. Here's a few more images showing that as well. Now, here's another one. This case was sent for adenocarcinoma. I read this case in pancreatic conference. Look how bulky the nodes are. And yes, I've seen nodes. Look at the coronal. I've seen nodes in pancreatic cancer, but that's really rare. When I see so many nodes, and yes, the common duct is dilated, but the way things grow down the periodic region, the way things grow into the mesentery, here's another 3D set of views. That's going to be lymphoma, okay? Big aortocaval nodes. To me, there's just too many nodes. And yes, occasionally I will be wrong, but that's going to be unlikely. When I see this infiltration, to me, we are talking about lymphoma. Okay? No magic, no difficulty. Really nicely shown on the cinematic as well. And here's another set of images. Now, you also have to be careful. Sometimes patients really luck out. 80-year-old patient with jaundice, recent onset, pancreatic cancer. But look carefully. You see there's a stone, which sometimes is missed. Sometimes the stone is not very opaque. And you can see, you follow it down, there's a ring-like lesion sitting right in the distal common duct near ampulla. Impacted stone, patient gets a ERCP, stone's removed, the patient is cured. Here it is again on the cinematic. Okay. Now we do need help, we're not perfect. Perfusion CT, eh. Texture mapping I think is gonna be big. Dual energy, some people like. I'm not that big a fan of pancreatic cancer. PET-CT, occasionally for looking at recurrence, occasionally for spread, but it's never really caught on. 25% of adenocarcinomas are falsely negative at PET. I think deep learning AI is going to be important. 
Profusion, here's an article by Garcia Figueroa talking about that. We've looked at Profusion a bit, maybe some better biomarkers, response to therapy or assessing response. It's possible. PET-CT, again, some people are advocates of that. It was a big push for PET-CT, but now it's something we do occasionally when you're looking for spread or something's atypical. They've tried to use it as planning when to do surgery. It's just not been as helpful, but there's opportunities there. This texture, that's really where I think early detection is going. I like to show the schematic showing the importance of looking at the most subtle signs of texture. So you look at this case, you see the tail, the texture is different. You don't see a dilated duct, but the texture is different. You gotta suspect tumor. Now the texture will vary on cinematic depending how you do the rendering. So there's a range of normals, but when you look at the lesion in the head of the pancreas here, that texture is totally different. And when you look at the classification, this is serous cyst adenoma, septations, all the things we look at, cystic lesion with multiple septations, central scar, that's wonderful for serous cyst adenoma. And you see how the GDA is displaced around the lesion. We talk about neuroendocrine tumors, which are cystic. Look in the body of the pancreas, that one centimeter ball, beautifully shown. And here it's rendered again with multiple different perspectives. And then, of course, I've spoken to you about the Felix Project, where we te taught the computer to find the pancreas, find the organs, segment them, understand what is normal, and then understand what is abnormal. The computer is one-to-one -one for detecting the gland and its boundaries. And now with 95% accuracy, we can not only find the gland, but we can look and determine what the lesion is. So you can see here very nicely shown how you think about the process of normal to abnormal and how the computer needs to be trained, but the future really is that. We've developed specific algorithms. Alan Yuli and his team course-defined algorithms, geometry, multi-organ segmentation. These are going to change how we practice. There is no doubt about it. Is it a year away? Is it five years away? Somewhere in between. But it's coming, and it should be awesome. So concluding then, in pancreatic cancer, we need a study that's widely available. We need to be able to execute it easily. We need to know how to read the studies, how to pick up early tumors so we can save lives. We need to know how CT is used for, for triage, be it surgery, radiation therapy, chemotherapy, or all of the above. We need accessibility to data. Second opinion, second opinion is the computer. We need more cases to be able to train the computer. We have semen scans, we need GE and Philips Toshiba. Anyone has cases that, and they wanna make them available, we're happy to use them and give you credit. But us or anybody else needs cases to train. It's really critical and we need to change. I'll go back to the first slide, 7% or 8% at best of patients are surviving. That is unsatisfactory. We need to change the curve, and we look forward to doing that over the next couple of years. And with that, I thank you for your attention, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. If you liked what you heard here today, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit our website, ctss.com, for lectures, quizzes, pearls, and more. 
Also, be sure to check out our apps that are available for free on the Apple Store. All links are in the description box below.